Well, now, some years ago, Gwilym, Archbishop of Wales, was celebrating the Eucharist in a little chapel in Anglesey. And immediately to the east of the altar was a window of plain, clear glass. And in his congregation was a priest and a poet called Euros Bowen. And he wrote in Welsh, and he's not really known uh, in English except very, very recently. But in translation, this is what he saw. In the translucence, the green earth budded in the morning view. The river was in bloom, the air a joyous flight, and the sunshine set the clouds ablaze. And I noticed the priest's eyes, as it were, unconsciously placing his hand on these gifts, as though these were the bread and the wine. Now the vividness of the vision and the economy of words, even in translation, are the fruits of an unbroken tradition, an unbroken vision, which reaches back into the fourth century, both in Wales and in Ireland, and of course Scotland being the inheritor of both. But let's have some historical background first. I think it's essential. The Celtic races seem to have crossed into these islands during the course of the millennium immediately before Christ. It's very difficult to be exact about dates. Um, there were two essentially different groupings. Uh, the Godelic-speaking Celts, let's call them Gaelic-speaking, it sounds easier, uh, the last wave of whom colonised Ireland from, of all places, Spain, and the Bretonic-speaking Celts, and let's call it Welsh, that's not strictly speaking, but Welsh is derived from the language, uh, Welsh-speaking Celts who crossed into Britain and pushed into both Wales and southern Scotland, probably from France and the Low Countries. And there's evidence, both of the Britonic, Welsh-speaking in people invading North and Eastern Ireland, and also the Gaelic speakers invading the western coast of areas of Ireland and of, of um, Wales and Cornwall. But all these invasions were short-lived. The more significant and permanent invasion was of the Gaelic-speaking Scotty, uh, who, of course, uh, who um, uh, into both the Britonic and Pictish west coastal areas of Scotland in probably the 5th century AD. So there's a certain amount of mingling, but up in Scotland, mostly. Now, if you ask the average English middle-aged ex-schoolboy, um, when the Christian faith came to these shores, uh, if he can remember at all, he will probably cite the arrival of St. Augustine of Canterbury in 597. If he is a Northumbrian, he will also remember St. Aidan being summoned from Iona by King Oswald, who of course was the one who defeated all those heathens, in inverted commas, at Heavenfield in 633. You've got to be a Northumbrian to remember that. Well, that battle was actually fought in my parish. Um, and Cadwallon described in the Oxford Dictionary of Saints as a, as a British tyrant, was killed at Peth Foot uh, in my parish. Um, but you see, Cadwallon was a Christian of perhaps 300 years background. He was king of the important Christian kingdom of Gwynedd. 
his was a Christian army and one at least of his undoubtedly mixed motives had been to drive these heathen Anglo-Saxon invaders back into the sea and rescue his land from uh, heathendom. Bede makes that fairly plain. Even Bede, because Bede was very anti-British. Now the faith, of course, came with the Romans. It came in the first century with individual soldiers, traders and settlers. The church gradually ex uh, established itself Mediterranean style in cities and towns leaving the countryside largely untouched and in 314 the bishops of London Lincoln and York attended the Council of Arles and some oh, 70 years later Bishop Germanus of Auxerre came on two official visits from France to, uh, you know, to help deal with the Pelagian heresy then currently causing trouble with the Romano-British church. The Pelagian heresy, Pelagius's other name, by the way, was Morgan. Um, <laughs> was too. At about the time of Germanus's visit, a young man, later known to us as St. Patrick, uh, was born probably at Bird Oswald on the Roman Wall. Lots of people claim St. Patrick, but I think Bird Oswald's got the best claim. His father was a Christian deacon, his grandfather a Christian priest indicating a pretty settled um, church setup. Um, also about the same time, one of the many Hellens you encounter, this one was the widow of the defeated pretender to the imperial throne, one Magnus Maximus. She returned to her native Herefordshire, full of enthusiasm for St. Martin of Tours, who she had met on her way home after her husband's death. Because Martin's bright idea, and it was a very new bright idea, was that of using monastic brotherhoods recently invented in Egypt as a tool for evangelizing the Pagani. If you want to know who, what, who the Pagani are, uh, well, we're, we're full of them up in my parish, they're country folk. The Pagani, the rural population, hitherto untouched. And Helen thought it was just the thing for tribal Wales and the Welsh border, and of course she was proved entirely correct. Now young Patrick, after all his late teenage adventures as a, uh, as a slave in captive herdsman in County Mayo, he returned to Ireland in his early 40s, and he established a Romano-British town-based Christian church. Town-based, in as far as you could find a town in Ireland. And um, in those days, in no time at all, and probably through its Welsh connection, it adapted itself to a more appropriate tribal monastic organisation and flourished exceedingly because of it. It adapted to the culture. You had monastic episcopacy instead of diocesan. And when Patrick was still a lad, and before he was captured by those famous Irish pirates, another Cumbrian, Ninian by name, established a mission, also monastic-based, also inspired by St. Martin of Tours. It was to substantially evangelise all the Britonic-speaking part of Scotland, in other words, the Welsh-speaking part of Scotland, which was all of it up to the Highland Line, all of it south of the Picts. Um, and it was to work up the Pictish east coast, possibly even as far as the Orkneys, according to some 
perhaps more enthusiastic historians. And all this, all this, a century and a half before the arrival of St. Augustine. It is really rather important to remember that, and we usually completely lose sight of it. What we now describe as Celtic spirituality, or are beginning to do so, is a tradition which traces its origin from the church of these pre-Augustinian centuries. Its spirituality evolved in a tribal, rural context, as opposed to the essentially civilised, which of course means citified, you know, Chivitas gives the, is where we get civilization from, a civilised, a citified context of continental Mediterranean Christianity. Its evolution was also affected by great and prolonged hardships over very many centuries of very many kinds. Of course, in mainland Britain, the Anglo-Saxon invasion shattered the whole thing, shattered the whole city base of British Christianity, certainly in the whole eastern half of the country. You can draw a line down from Cheviot almost down to the south coast, and you can say Anglo-Saxon one side and Celts the rest. It's almost true now, if you really look. Um, it survived, the faith survived, and it flourished in the West and in Wales due to the increasing tribal, monastic, rural organisation which was suitable for the culture and the situation as it then was. Now, you know, we can go on with history but because it's fascinating, but for the moment, suffice it to say that adversity, a rural context unpolluted by town-based attitudes and blindnesses, and a blessed freedom over many centuries from ecclesiastical power politics and the complications and pollutions that they bring with them have given the Celtic fringe a vision which shines for us, shines for me, like a light in darkness. Uh, it is, I suggest, very much that same light into which both St. Francis of Assisi and very differently Pierre Teilhard de Chardin both emerged after struggling long and painfully out of different morasses of overlay and conditionings. I suggest, therefore, it's not without relevance for ourselves and our own rather tormented generation. Now, just a little word about sources before I go on to the thing itself. I suffer a very serious deprivation, and I feel it too. I am without either the Welsh or the Gaelic. I intend to put that right during my retirement, please God. Um, and so I'm limited to material available in translation. Perhaps it's just as well, because so is everybody else who doesn't happen to have these languages. Fortunately, there's quite a lot to be found, and it's increasing in extent as interest in it is increasingly aroused. And, of course, the, the great work is Alexander Carmichael's Otten and Gale, which is otherwise known as the Camina Gedelica, and its six volumes, they're that thick, um, represent a life's loving work in the 19th century, collecting the prayers, healing charms and connected mythology of the Gaelic speakers of the Scottish West Coast and Isles. I said there's six volumes, actually there's a one volume but, uh, paperback just come out and I commend that to anybody and everybody. It will change your life. And you see, this 
which is common to both Catholic and Reformed churchgoers, owes next to nothing to either of those two ecclesiastical institutions as now discovered. It's the religion of the hearth. It's handed down from lip to ear, generation to generation. It's been claimed fancifully, of course, but not all that fancifully, to owe its origins rather to the Celtic monasteries of Derry and Iona than to um, the Kirk or to the Roman church as now is. My own comment is that the more I read it, the more close I feel to the origins and the truth of my own faith. As to the rest, well, our Lord's injunction, Seek and you shall find, is not a bad one. Kenneth Jackson's book, especially perhaps his Celtic uh, miscellany, available in Penguin, are a veritable treasure house. There's some excellent modern Welsh material available, just coming into translation, a lot of it. And here I discern the common thread, still very visible in contemporary Welsh poetry, as Joros Bowen and Gwynalt and people like that uh, make very plain. So, okay, Celtic spirituality, what shall we find in it? Well, the first thing you find is fundamental Christian orthodoxy. Absolutely uncompromising. And in my reading, you won't find anything else. The Holy Trinity, one and undivided, is everywhere invoked. Perhaps not too surprising that they took to the Trinitarian orthodoxy because everything works in threes among Celts. It really does. Always has. Thus, the Kilmnachorach, the daily dedication to the path of right. My walk this day with God. My walk this day with Christ. My walk this day with Spirit. The threefold all kindly. Ho, 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 the threefold all kindly. My shielding this day from ill. My shielding this night from harm. Ho, ho, both my body and my soul. Be by Father, by Son, by Holy Spirit. By Father, by Son, by Holy Spirit. The daily prayer of every Islesman and West Coast Scot, certainly up to the last century. Or to the ocean blessing, asked by those afloat on the Atlantic in small and frail craft. God the Father, all-powerful, benign. Jesus, the Son of tears and of sorrow. With thy co-assistance, O Holy Spirit, sane us and shield us and sanctify us. Be thou King of the elements, seated at our helm, and lead us in peace to the end of our journey. Or the, you know, every department of life is full of lip-to-ear handed down prayers of this sort. Or the blessing of the new moon, how about that? To whom every Islesman would uncover his head as to a lady. Well, why not indeed? In the name of the Holy Spirit of Grace, in the name of the Father of the City of Peace, in the name of Jesus who took death off us, oh, in the name of the three who shield us in every need, if well thou hast found us tonight, seven times better mayest thou leave us without harm. Thou bright white moon of the seasons, bright white moon of the seasons. And in prayers and blessings for God's many graces, um, praying for each other, I pray for you, you for me, 
The form of God is behind thee. The form of Christ is before thee. The stream of the Spirit is through thee to succor and to aid thee. Thou art the love of the God of life. Thou art the love of tender Christ. Thou art the love of Spirit holy. Thou art the love of each living creature. And delightfully, a blessing and a thanksgiving for the beauty of a pretty girl. Now can you imagine, in your wildest imaginings, the galloping misogyny of the teaching magisterium of the Western Church in any of its manifestations giving thanks for the blessing for the beauty of a pretty girl. Well, here it is. The beauty of God is in thy face. The Son of God is protecting thee from the wicked ones of the world. The King of the stars is before thee. Since it is Mary and Jesus her Son who set this pleasantness in thy face, may the taste of mild honey be upon thee and upon every word thou speakest. How's that? So the holy and ever-blessed Trinity is the context of all things in the Celtic vision. And the Celtic vision is of a creation that is the transfigured image of its creator. The Celtic vision is of a creation that is the transfigured image of its creator. And if you can think of anything more Christian than that, I cannot. And it follows from this, you see, that heaven and earth, being both parts of creation, are completely inextricably intermingled. The saints of God and the holy angels are all one with ourselves, with our cattle, and with every detail of our lives. All creatures in heaven and upon earth are our brethren and the givers and receivers of both God's love, our own love and each other's love. And so, you see, you get up in the morning and you kindle the fire, you stir up the peat and you say, I will raise the hearth fire as Mary would, the encirclement of bride and of Mary on the fire and on the floor and on the household all. Who are they on the bare floor? John and Peter and Paul. Who are they by my bed? The lovely bride and her fosterling. Who are these watching over my sleep? The fair loving Mary and her lamb. Who is that near me? The king of the sun. He himself it is. Who is that at the back of my head? The son of life without beginning, without time. You do that when you're stirring the fire up in the morning. And it must be said that although the whole company of heaven are our brethren, there are some that the Celtic Christian perhaps finds a bit more easy to relate to than others. Um, first of all is Mary, the Holy Mother of God. Then in Ireland and Gaelic Scotland, Columba, Columkeller, is a favourite. As so is the Archangel Michael and so is Bridget, more often known as Bride, of whom more in a moment. Now that Colossus among the Welsh saints, St. Samson of Dole, and I bet you never heard of him, was a great carver of crosses on standing stones and a great wise and imaginative assimilator and baptizer 
of good and acceptable pagan custom into the one and true faith. This was the genius of the Celtic missionaries. They knew what was worthy of respect and they knew that our Lord is the fulfilment of all that is best and truest in pagan religion worldwide. And this, I suggest, is why their mission was blessed with such success and such endearing success. They recognized foundations when they saw them and built securely upon them. They had the good manners to discover how these good folk ticked and they related to that just as St. Paul did. Now we've encountered a reference to, to Bride and her fosterling in the prayer over this newly kindled fire. We must pay some attention to Bride because she's a case in point and in my estimation for what it's worth a rather agreeable one. St. Bride of Kildare was a contemporary of St. Patrick and a very remarkable woman easily early recognized as a saint of God. She's assimilated to herself the pagan goddess Bridget, or Bride, an archetypal figure who was the recipient of much love and devotion in pagan times, rather a, rather a sort of respectable sort of pagan goddess, if you know what I mean. Um, pagan Bridget has been taken up into Christian Bride. She's also gathered a mythology about her which sees her as, obviously apocryphally, a companion of Our Lady, midwife of the at the birth of Christ and co-discoverer with Mary and Joseph of the child Jesus in the temple. Delightful but apocryphal, yes, but what might it be saying? If this is recognised as a poetic expression of the fulfilment by our Lord's blessed incarnation of the pagan hope as well as the Hebrew, which it surely was, then Bride is indeed a fascinating and delightful example of that fulfilment. And I really cannot imagine St. Bride of Kildare in heaven being in the least put out by having the best of pagan Bridget hung about her. I really can't. I've got a funny feeling that this is what quite a lot of heaven is about. It is necessary for Anglo-Saxons to remember that to be a Celt is to be a poet and to think poetically. The Celt naturally relates his origins to mythology rather than to history. And who is so presumptuous as to say that he is mistaken? So let's go to the, to the buyer, or if you come from the south, the cowshed. Come Mary, and milk my cow. Come bride, and encompass her. Come Columba the benign, and twine thine arms around my cow. Ho my heifer, ho my gentle heifer, my heifer dear, generous and kind. For the sake of the high king, take to thy calf. Come, Mary Virgin, to my cow. Come, great bride, the beauteous. Come, thou milkmaid of Jesus Christ, and place thine arms beneath my cow. Ho, oh, my heifer, my gentle heifer. Lovely black cow, pride of the sheeling. First cow of the buyer, choice mother of calves. Whists of straw round the necks, round the cows of the townland. A shackle of silk on my heifer, beloved. No distinction between saints of God and the cow or you and me or anybody else why should there be well I've quoted so far from the Camina in a quite extraordinary way it, say, it says it all and it does so because it's the religion of the hearth and not the religion of an ever increasingly intellectualized ecclesiastical institution 
To put it another way, it's the religion of the heart. It's not the religion of the head. And I think it's been our misfortune for several centuries past to have been brought up in an excessively head-centred way. And head-centred religion, because it's out of balance with itself, compensates from the guts. Intellectualism and sickly sentimentality go hand in hand because they're not centred. Look at some of the bilge we sing to God out of hymn books. If we're tempted to sentimentalise about things Celtic, we are dead wrong because there's nothing what sentimental whatever about Celtic spirituality. Its feet are firmly on the ground. If you want to get to heaven, I suggest you've got to have both feet on the ground, firmly. And thus, amid the prayers and blessings, a thanksgiving for the farmer's food and his footgear. So the thanksgiving is about three pints of raw whey, the fill of the cat's cog of porridge, a good thick round bannock that's been half an hour in the ashes, a trough of coalfish among every eight of us, every carcass and every pithless beast that falls on top of knoll or hillock or height or in glen at mountain's foot for wool and for skin. That were the raiment, with shoe soles of the hundred-thonged hide of the brown bull of Cooley, who would put nine cows in heat with one brooling bellow. <laughs> See what I mean about feet on the ground and all that? <laughs> well, the, the Camina Gedelica represents very much the spirituality of the Gaelic-speaking Celt. The Britonic Celt, the Welsh speaker, has a slightly different background different pattern of sufferings in his history and there's something quite distinctive about his spirituality within the whole Celtic tradition. The centrality of the altar, the impossibility of separating word from sacrament, very strong in, the, in that tradition. And it's put beautifully by Eurus Bowen, again in translation, and of course the man is thinking in Welsh. So the English... You have to listen a bit. In the anxiety which at the fair linen cloth of our praise is free from care, while for us there is the broken bread and the peace from the word that speaks of the wine given for, a, for an age set on the ideas and practices of tomorrow's wrong, let the blessed sustenance come from the heart of security as confidence for men until it shall glow in the world with the light which breaks forth from the mystery, so that the word of grace shall not be an ideology of Christ. So that the word of grace shall not be an ideology of Christ. Thank Amen for that. Well now, you see the Welsh revival, we encounter it in some of the best hymns in the hymn book, with their wonderful Welsh tunes all in a minor key, uh, known to us in translation, but they only scratch the surface. Perhaps the most vivid modern interpretation of Celtic spirituality comes from the Welsh poet Gwynaut in his poem to St. David. Again, I'm reading a translation. But some of these Welshmen can translate beautifully into English. I saw Dewey, that's St. David, I saw Dewey strolling from county to county like God's gypsy with the gospel and the altar in his caravan and coming to us in the colleges and schools to show us what is the purpose of learning. 
he went down to the bottom of the pit with the miners and cast the light of his lamp on the coal face. On the platform of the steel works he put on goggles and a little blue shirt and showed the Christian being purified like metal in a furnace. And he led the proletariat to his unrespectable church. He carries his church everywhere as a body, life, brain and will that did little and great things. He brought church to our homes, took bread from the pantry and bad wine from the cellar and stood behind the table like a tramp so as not to hide the wonder of the sacrifice from us. And after the communion we chatted by the fireside and he talked to us about God's natural order, the person, the family, the nation and the society of nations and the cross keeping us from turning any one of them into a god. Well, that's Gwenault talking about St. David and how right he is. Sum the whole thing up contemporarily. And there's an understanding of the life of prayer which underlies this whole tradition. It's beautifully expressed by Morgan Hoyd in a passage of his Book of the Three Birds, which appeared in 1653. The dove is here instructing the eagle. The dove says, There are many voices in a man's heart. The noise of the world and its news and its troubles and its pleasures and its terrors. Inside the heart's room there's also the noise of thoughts and disorders and the ebb and flow of flesh and blood. So the poor soul, like the drunkard's lodging, is full of clamour inside, one desire agitating the other. Or like a fair or a great market, where noise and talking and shouting fill the streets of the town within. This is the reason why a man doesn't know half his own thoughts and why he doesn't hear aright what his own heart is saying. And the eagle says, But how can a man's mind be stilled? And the dove replies, By going into the secret room, and that room is God himself. Brothers and sisters, be happy and keep your faith and your belief, and do the little things that you have heard and seen me do. Do the little things. And still in the Welsh translation, it's the essential vision of creation as the transfigured image of its creator which prays, guard for me my feet upon the gentle earth of Wales. I gave this talk as part of its title, A Vision of Wholeness. I have suggested that the distinctive Celtic Christian vision derives from the earliest centuries of the Christian faith in these islands. I am sure it's a mistake to think that the Celtic lands were cut off or isolated from the rest of the Western Church has sometimes been suggested. But they do seem to have been preserved for long periods of time from the worst excesses of ecclesiastical power politics and the associated corruptions therewith. They also seem to have been preserved, and I think as importantly, until comparatively recent times, from the worst effects of that obsession with original sin and guilt and all the rest associated with some of St. Augustine of Hippo's writings and finding all too willing echoes in the Western Mediterranean world of his times, thus tending to colour and even distort the Western Church's approach to creation itself, of which 
distortions, we are of course inheritors, which is why we have to have green movements among us. Nothing is more redundant in the Celtic vision than a green movement. Augustine's latter-day disciples, Calvin on the Reform side and Janssen on the Catholic side, have painted his picture even darker than he did. That is a tragedy, I think, of the Reformation. An institutional Celtic Christianity has suffered somewhat, has suffered somewhat, since their days, from a darkening of its vision, institutionally, institutionally. But this, I suggest, is a fit subject for another lecture some other time possibly by somebody else. So let me suggest a few points by way of summing up. One, like St. Patrick, the Celtic vision will arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. The fundamental Christian belief in the Holy Trinity, in the blessed incarnation, in the essential integrity of heaven and earth, as inextricably interwoven lies at the heart of the Celtic vision and the spirituality which springs from it. Second thing, the blessed fellowship of all the creatures of heaven and all the creatures of earth is interwoven in the Celtic heart, like a very knotwork that gives it artistic expression. You think of all those wonderful Celtic squiggly bits. You never find the beginning or the end. Creation is blessed, it can never be other than the transfigured image of its creator. It's both lived and sustained by mutual, unself-conscious love. Third thing, there's a complete and total realism. Imperfection, human sin and non-human evil are all experienced facts of life. Penitence is vigorous but never obsessional, never morbid. There's no hint of world rejection and no hint of that perfectly horrid business, the false spiritualizing of the material. No hint whatever. And fourth, every facet of earthly life is shot through and through with heaven. There's therefore no dichotomy possible between sacred and secular, because all is sacred. And the fifth thing, word and sacrament, the gospel and the altar, are an integrated whole. They can't be anything else. The light breaks forth from the mystery so that the word of grace shall not be an ideology of Christ. And the sixth thing, we are to be happy. We are to keep our faith and our belief and we are to do the little things which are the foundation of everyday Christian living. Well, what remains? Well, the first one, of course, is obvious. It's an apology because I've admitted so much, forgotten so much, and am ignorant of so much more. I can but hope to whet a few appetites here and there. And finally, perhaps a blessing upon you with my thanks for listening. It's an old Irish blessing, but I found it translated from the Welsh into English, so it's got to be appropriate, hasn't it? May the blessing of light be on you. Light without and light within. May the blessed sunlight shine upon you and warm your heart till it glows like a great peat fire so that the stranger may come and warm himself at it as well as the friend.
And may the light shine out of the eyes of you, like a candle set in the windows of a house, bidding the wanderer to come in out of the storm. And may the blessing of the rain be on you, the soft, sweet rain. May it fall on your spirit, so that all the little flowers may spring up and shed their sweetness on the air. And may the blessing of the great rains be on you. May they beat upon your spirit and wash it fair and clean, and leave there many a shining pool where the blue of heaven shines and sometimes a star. And may the blessing of the earth be upon you, the great round earth. May you ever have a kindly greeting for people you pass as you go along the road. And now, may the Lord bless you, and bless you kindly. you'd like to ask Tony after that most whetting of appetites talk please feel free if I could answer hello I'm sorry what if anything was lost sin on Whitby and also have you lost the microphone ah Your second question is answered here. Uh, we've also lost the little bit that it hangs on to, I think, have we? No? I've been gesticulating, probably. Um, what did we lose at the Synod of Whitby? Oh, I don't know, really. Um, I think it's, e it's easy to over... Uh, to, to, to sort of think perhaps we lost too much. Uh, what we, we... We lost the... A, a wonderful chance of cross-fertilization between the, the Roman mission coming up from the, the south and the Celtic already established in Northumbria um, largely because of the, the arrogance of um, St. Wilfred who was an insufferable young man at that stage and carried on being insufferable for most stages but he was canny in some respects <laughs> no doubt he's, he's alright now but, um, um, and you know, that, that was the, the sad thing about it. There was a chance to actually talk, uh, uh, but um, both sides were perhaps, both sides were perhaps a little too um, sure of themselves being in the right, probably. And so we got, so we, at least the, the whole of the eastern side of England, and remember it was only the eastern side of England, um, went sort of continental as it were well there's no great difference it's just a slight difference in vision uh, the western side of the west of the Pennines um, you, you had the the, the, the the British church and the two were sort of running side by side um, not terribly liking each other uh, particularly uh, neither of them liked each other at all um, I'm afraid we had this wonderful gift for bickering don't we uh, and then of course along came the Danes and the Vikings and jumbled them all up together and so what in fact I think it's too simple to say oh it was that awful synod of Whitby I think uh, I know what you mean but I, I, what we lost I'm not quite sure what we lost really 
or whether it was that, you know, or something else. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been there once, one day only at Dewey Sant. Um, just, uh, she, she was saying about, uh, she lives uh, under the shadow of St. David's Cathedral in Wales, and um, uh, her daughter's written something about it, and uh, very kindly inviting me to, to share it with them. I've been there once. Um, I was fascinated, by the way, about St. David he was slightly different because whereas the others like um, um, Iltud and Tylo and um, Diffrig and Sampson uh, the other uh, contemporaries of his uh, they, they got their tradition um, of monasticism from via St. Martin of Tours uh, via Helen the widow of uh, Magnus Maximus, Maxim Ledig, as they say in Wales. Uh, David was slightly different. Uh, his, his inspiration came much more directly from Egypt. So he was a much more uh, ascetic chap than they were. And the other thing was that, of course, in his day, um, there was Irish rule of that part of, of Wales. And so his wasn't just a Christian monastery uh, it was an outpost of distinctively Welsh culture in the middle of an Irish-speaking uh, occupied part of Wales. So he's a much more interesting man than, um, than I had thought. And I... Yeah. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, my, um, my husband, Cameron, people, and uh, when you mentioned Trinity, he was also a principal of Trinity College, uh, mm. Christian
uh, the names have been handed down uh, through oral tradition, I think, or through myth, and they are not necessarily reliable. So one, one immediately feels that some doubt has been cast on some of this early history. Um, that, that, that is one general question. Uh, there's also a problem, too, I believe, with mixed uh, speech, which is a sort of pigeon Welsh, which must have been a mixture of Welsh and, and uh, Latin, perhaps. And uh, to what extent that was actually spoken, because some of them are referred to as foreigners, and it probably means that they're speaking with a foreign tongue, which is a sort of mixture of Latin and, and Welsh, perhaps. Um, the other, the other points. So, um, another question really is, it concerns the question of ecclesiastical power politics. Um, I think it's possibly the Saxon court of the time of Dunstan and uh, quite a number of political murders which took place in Saxon England in the different courts and so on. Um, I wonder if that was an inherited from an earlier pagan period. It was a, a gradual process of Christianization of the country rather than, than perhaps just power politics or such. Um, and lastly, I'm just wondering, too, you mentioned the Picts. Um, we don't know a great deal about them. There were, I suppose, Pictish Christians. Um, I think the names, was it St. Surf was perhaps a, a Pict, and uh, Round Towers, and uh, places like Abernethy and Forgundeni, perhaps, in Scotland. And the um, Pictish saints who had their little bells sometimes, uh, presumably to summon congregation. So um, I remember seeing two um, marvellous sculpted stone up in, I think it was Marsha near Forres, called one thing stone, and other stones at Berg Head with bulls on. So uh, I believe some of these early sculptures were perhaps, there was one theory that they might have been tribal symbols, but you have definite symbols, and uh, some of them I think are Christian. So uh, there must have been a tradition of Pictish Christianity, and it may have penetrated uh, Northumbria, perhaps, in the Anglican areas. Could you just throw a little bit more? A lot of questions. Well, well, I'll I'll sort of of scatter the odd thing at you. Um, The the answer to a lot of your questions is I don't know, but um, as far as the Picts, taking that first, we don't know much about them because there's nothing, they left no written records at all. I've got a fascinating book uh, at home by a man called Archibald Scott, um, a learned um, Scots divine at the beginning of this century called The Pictish Nation and Its Church. I think it may be a uh, a wonderful piece of partisan and hopeful uh, sort of uh, history. I'm not sure, but it makes great reading. He would argue that there was a very strong Pictish church um, from fairly early times. I think the, the, the um, influence was not the Picts downwards, but the, uh, the Northumbrians upwards, strangely enough. Um, and, of course, earlier, uh, the, the St. Ninian's um, mission went right across the south of Scotland and, some would say, went up the Pictish east coast. But cer- certainly there was... Uh, there was influence both from Ninian and from later Northumbrian sources. As far as the um, speaking mixtures of Welsh and Latin, well, I, I'm not really sure. The, the, litany, the, the liturgy was always in Latin. Um, uh, wherever you went, Ireland, anywhere, the liturgy was always in Latin. Um, and the, the word stranger, 
actually is the Anglo-Saxon word, I can't pronounce it exactly, but we call it Welsh. Welsh actually means stranger, and their own um, word for themselves means friends. So I think there may be a, uh, a, a muddle there, but a lot of these things I, I, I'm no more, uh, you know, I, I'm in the, as much in the dark perhaps as you are. Well, I'm not wise on druids actually, but uh, I, but I would say that um, that it seems that the Celtic missionaries. But it, let me just tell you one story which might illustrate one interpretation of St. Columba and Iona, which might actually uh, il- uh, answer the question for you, or uh, suggest an answer. One of the uh, interpretations of St. Columba's arrival in Iona that I heard, which rang bells for me, was that in fact this was the, the headquarters of, of Druidism in that part of Scotland, which it probably was. It's very ancient um, uh, things on Iona. And that he went to the chief Druid and said, uh, you know, in your religion, you're expecting, uh, they had had a a Trinitarian idea of of, of three gods anyway. And you know, in your religion, you say one day the sun god will walk the earth and all the ills of man will be healed. I've come with some good news. He just has. And his name's Jesus. Um, Which is the sort of thing that St. Paul said in Athens you know, walking around, how can I relate to these people? Ah, there's an altar to an unknown God. I'll, t- I'll start from where they are. And so you've got to start from where they are. Uh, otherwise, it's just arrogance. Uh, so you've got to start, you've got to relate from the best and the most relatable to of where they are. And the tragedy is that so much post-Reformation missionary activity uh, started out from total antagonism. You are all wrong. We are all right. You know, and then you wonder why things don't gel. Well, thanks to the American Indians.
but he had so he would see no point of contact between between the virgin goddess and the virgin mary or between the goddess diana of ephesus and the virgin mary which subsequent christians have, have seen so the parthenon has had been converted at one time into a christian church but though those were points of contact for prophecy and calvinism to some extent followed for in belittling any forms of popular religions of the masses but only could see points of contact perhaps with a with a very uh, narrow theism thank you Can you speak up just a little? I'd just like to ask you if you could say one more thing to me about I think it's very unusual with the word of grace not being an ideology of Christ I don't know if I've got the word mm. exactly, but I just wonder if you could say one more thing about that It's Euros uh, Bowen's uh, expression, not mine, but it sort of speaks to me um, his point I think is that you can't separate the the gospel the um, you, you can't sort of you, you can't sort of uh, break up the mystery you can't separate um, the word the, the, the gospel from the sacraments you know it, it's it's um, that the, you, and, you, and uh, particularly as far as, uh, as um, the word of grace not being an ideology of Christ I, I would rather have preferred a little more notice of this because you've got to sort of sit back and think rather hard and I'm not very good at it um, you can't sort of turn our Lord into a political program or into some kind of an ideology it all is, it's all part, it's part of the mystery get the idea? I'm not, I'm not being very coherent because I'm afraid because uh, I would have to go back and think rather hard. Um, I feel a bit like um, the, an American poet who was once asked by somebody, what did he mean by such and such a poem? And he scratched his head and said, lady, what do you want me to do? Go away and write it again in worser English? You know, <laughs> I feel a bit like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Well, the books that I, I, I think I referred to, the first one was the Carmina Gedelica, um, which has recently been put into a one-volume English only, um, by, uh, and it's published by Floris, Floris Books, I think it is, uh, uh, as a paperback in Edinburgh. Floris, I think it is, in Edinburgh. The original was, was the, the, Edinburgh Univers the academic press in Edinburgh. But uh, Floris books, um, it's about 1195 or something quite absurd. I remember that vividly because I started buying the big volumes at about £30 each. I managed to get three of them, then discovered all the rest were out of print. And then someone said, oh, there's a paperback round the corner for 11 quid. I was chuffed, you know. 
these, these things happen to one, don't they? Uh, well, it, it, it's the author is the collector of all this stuff is Alexander Carmichael, Carmina Carmina Gadelica, C A R M I N A Gadelica, you know. Can I say there's a very good bibliography at the back of this book, which is available? Yes, it's all in there. I, yeah. Plug, you know. It's yeah. Father Anthony's <laughs> latest book. Yeah. It's on there. Well, that, 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 that's the, the really big, big one. There's lots of little anthologies from it, some excellent ones which led me to it. But why bother with an anthology when you can actually, for 11 quid, go and get the real thing? You can read all about the fairies and all kinds of funny things in that. Well, I think we've come to the natural uh, point to, to stop. And uh, as a fellow parish priest, as I've said for the same number of years as, uh, as Tony, who has found in much that he's written and a lot that he's said today, uh, many things which I haven't been able to articulate but feel deeply inside myself. And this morning for our meditation, we used R.S. Thomas. Oh, yes. I refer to as Keltish, mm. if not. And um, we referred to the Bushman's walking with the moon and the, yeah. and the stars. And you've helped us, both in our orthodoxy and in our imagination, and encouraged one very greatly. So on behalf of you all, I'd like to thank Tony for all <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.